All right, well, good morning again. Happy Easter. It is wonderful to celebrate this morning with you. Celebrate the greatest day in history, the most important events that have ever happened. The most important events that have ever happened we're celebrating this morning. We are remembering, as, as both John and Travis share, we're remembering that Jesus Christ died, but then three days later, he came back to life. And it's a fantastical story, and yet I believe that it's true, that it actually really happened and that it has um, profound implications for us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is those profound implications, what it means that a man really died and then he really rose again. And so we're going to start off with a story. I'm going to tell you a story, and uh, this is probably not a true story. It's one of those urban legends that has been circulating, I think, for decades. You may have heard it before, but here's how it goes. There's a ship. There's a Navy ship traveling across the sea. And it's traveling across the sea in the fog. It's this thick fog they can barely see in front of them 50 yards. And they're navigating through this fog, and then there's, there's this transmission that they hear from somewhere off in the distance ahead of them. And here's what it says. So this unknown vessel, divert your course 90 degrees to the south to avoid imminent collision. Okay, there's something ahead of them. So divert your course 90 degrees. The Navy ship responds, negative, you divert your course 90 degrees north to avoid collision. Just a short pause and they get another response. Again, I say divert your course 90 degrees to the south to avoid catastrophe. Navy ship responds. This is the captain of the nuclear aircraft carrier USS Nimitz of the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by nine destroyers, five cruisers. We displace 55 million tons, and I demand you change your course 90 degrees to the north. After a brief pause, this response comes back. Uh, this is Signalman Second Class Morris of the Marblehead Lighthouse, sir, your call. And I tell that story this morning because we all are a lot like that ship. We're all, all a lot like that ship in that we, we think we're pretty important. And we have a particular course. There's a direction that we're heading. And we assume that everybody else, entire world, and even God himself should conform to that course should adapt themselves to where we're headed. But the problem is, sometimes we don't see very clearly. Sometimes our perspective is a little, little off. And we need to be redirected by God, actually the immovable one. God is immovable, and that's a good thing, which we're going to explain a little later. But sometimes we need to be redirected by God. And my hope this morning is that we can be. Again, we all see things a little off when it comes to how we view God and how we view reality. And sometimes we just need to be, our course needs to be shifted some. And so I'm gonna pray for us right now. I, I'd ask you to join me in prayer that we would be willing to be led by God this morning. Okay, God, we, uh, we do thank you that we can come here this morning and we thank you that you are the good, right, immovable one. And Lord, I pray right now that you would give us hearts of humility 
Lord, we, um, we often see things uh, from a skewed perspective. We don't see things rightly, and we need your correction. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would soften each one of our hearts and that you would help us to be led by you this morning. Open our eyes to see what we need to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've been going through a short series here, short Easter series from last Palm Sunday and then Friday on Good Friday and then this morning. We've been going through this Easter series. We've been entitled Surprising Hope. Okay, Surprising Hope. And the idea has been that those involved with the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, they were surprised. They were surprised by a lot of those events. It just didn't go according to how they thought it should go. And so at every turn, they seemed to, to, to bump up against this, this shocking event that they just weren't quite ready for. But you know, they should have been ready. They should have been ready because they were told. Let's look at that. I want you to flip in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. It's on page 844 if you're using a house Bible. And we're going to see how a lot of these people, a lot of Jesus' disciples, probably should have known what was going to happen, but they couldn't quite get it through their heads because they were just thinking differently. They needed to be redirected. They needed a different paradigm for them to be able to see what God was doing. So, read with me Mark 8, uh, verses 31 through 33, and you'll see the, the subtitle of this section, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I'll repeat that. He said this plainly. He was not being cryptic here. He told them straight out, this is what's going to happen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He, Peter was going to correct him. Jesus was thinking wrongly here. And this seemed like a noble thing for Peter to do. Jesus was talking crazy here. And so Peter said, no, that's not how it's going to happen. We will defend you, Jesus. So he took him aside and rebuked him. Here's Jesus' response. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this is one of the, the, the most severe rebukes that we see from Jesus in the Bible. He rebukes Peter strongly because Peter was, was looking through this certain perspective. He had this paradigm. He was looking at the things of man and not the things of God. Let's go to the next page, though. Mark 9, verses 30 through 32. You'll see again the the subtitle there. Jesus again foretells death, resurrection. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So again, he tells them very, very plainly, this is what's going to happen. I am going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again three days later. But they couldn't understand it. We can flip the page. Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. Jesus foretells his death a third time. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, 
what was, going to, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so he says again in, in more detail, he describes the brutality of his death the mockery, and then says he will, will rise three days later. But again, they just seemed to miss it. These words were confusing. They couldn't understand what he was saying. Now, I want us to flip ahead a ways to Luke chapter 24 and to see Luke's account of the resurrection. <clears throat> it's page 884 in your house Bible. We're going to read Luke 24, 1 through 12. Jesus had died, and this was three days later. But on the first day of, of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. This is the, the women who had followed Jesus. They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These two angels appeared. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women, with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Okay, so, so Peter, and we're told in a different gospel, John, they do run to the tomb because they're intrigued and something happened, they're not quite sure, and so they go to the tomb. But in general, the disciples just still didn't believe it. It seemed like it was an idle tale to them when the women reported what they had seen. They just couldn't, they couldn't receive this. They couldn't have it sink into their brains that this was happening, even though they were told by Jesus over and over and over again. Why couldn't they they get this. Why couldn't they believe it? Well, again, because they had a different perspective. They had a different paradigm. They were looking at the world. They were looking at God in a certain way. And what God was doing here didn't fit in how they were looking at the world. They, they were looking through this tunnel. And God was doing things outside of that tunnel. And they just couldn't see it. He just wasn't fitting. That's why they were so surprised. He didn't fit into how they assumed things could go. After all. They had a certain view of God, and they had a certain view of what, what he should do. They had a view of a God who was, who was ready to exalt them as a people and defeat their Roman oppressors like, like Travis shared with us last week. That's what they were expecting him to do. That's what they, they, they wanted. That was their hope, their desire. And because what Jesus was doing wasn't fitting into that hope and desire, they just simply couldn't see it. Now... We, of course, are very much the same. And we have these different paradigms also. We think God should be a certain way. We think he should do certain things. And when he doesn't do them, 
we're confused, frustrated, and we miss him. And sometimes we even reject him for it. And so this morning, I want to see if we are willing, like that ship, to be redirected. Redirected around some key ideas, some key questions. And here are the, here are the, the two, two questions that I want to ask this morning and try to answer briefly and see if we can be redirected and understand these questions a little more clearly from God's perspective this morning. And those questions are, who is God? And what is our biggest problem? Okay, who is God and what is our biggest problem? We'll start with that first question, who is God? Now, that's not a short answer. Okay? We spend a long time answering that question and not get there. But I do want it to give us an answer that I think is helpful and that we need to understand this morning. And we're going to, to answer that question by going to perhaps another surprising passage. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. We should turn to Revelation chapter 5 with me. It's on page 1030 in your house Bible. <clears throat> and the book of Revelation is a vision given to the Apostle John. And he's given this, this vision of future events. God shows him what's going to happen. And so we read about how, how God is, is going to judge and then he's going to restore all things. And, and that's much of the book of Revelation. But also in this book, John gets a glimpse of heaven even of God himself. Especially here in chapter 5, he gets a glimpse of the throne room of God. And we're going to read uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And what we're going to see here, we're actually going to see Jesus. Jesus being the exact image representation of God, God himself, as we're told in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Okay, so we're, so we're going to see, see Jesus, but we're seeing God. So let's read it. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Okay, so, so here's the scene. There's this scroll, and this scroll represents the revelation of God. This is how God is going to speak. This is going to, going to show his words and his actions in this scroll. And so God's revelation was being brought forward, but nobody could open the scroll. Nobody was strong enough. Nobody was wise enough to open this scroll. And John recognized that, and so he started weeping. He started weeping because they couldn't access who God was and what he wanted to tell them. So he starts weeping, but then next verse... One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, so we're building an intensity and, and this, this scroll comes forward, but nobody can open it. And, and so John is weeping, but then someone says, don't worry, the lion of Judah is here. And he's strong enough and he can reveal God's words here. And so the lion is coming forward, and the curtain is pulled back to see the lion. And this is what John sees. <clears throat> Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incest, which are, are the prayers of the saints. <clears throat> and they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So in the throne room of God, the scroll is, it needs to be open. The lion arrives to open it, but when, when John looks at the lion, he sees a lamb who appeared as if it had been killed. So why do we read this this morning, and what does this tell us about God? Well, very simply, this, this shows that God is a lion, and God is a lamb. Okay, so God is a lion, and God is a lamb. And he's both. And I think this is a a good and important way to summarize who God is because God is a lion in his fierceness, in his strength, his power, in his obligation to punish sin, in what the Bible calls his holiness, his transcendence. He, He is a lion in those ways. He is overwhelming and he must punish And at the same time, he is a lamb. He's a lamb in his meekness, his humility, his gentleness, his peacefulness, his graciousness, his love. So God is both a lion and a lamb. He is both holy and loving. Now the problem is we have a really, really hard time fitting those together. We can't in our finite humanity merge those together very well at all. Usually we pick one or the other in some way but he is both. Okay, so that's how I'm going to answer who is God first, and we're going to set that aside for just a second. Next question is, what is our biggest problem? And for this, I just want to summarize uh, something from John 5, 1 through 17. This is a story of a healing that Jesus performed where he healed uh, a man who was paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda. Okay, so he heals this man, and then he, he finds the man later after, after the man was able to walk. And I just want to read verse 14, what he says to this man. He says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And Jesus said this kind of thing actually frequently. He said this to several different people that he he healed. He healed them. He took away this, this enormous problem that they were grappling with. And then what does he tell them? He says, Okay, now stop sinning. He stopped sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And what he's implying here, I think, is that the real issue is sin. He can take care of of relatively minor issues, but the real issue is our sin. I want to share a quote with you. We've shared this quote before on Sunday morning, but I think it's such a good one. It's from G.K. Chesterton, and he was asked by um, a, a news publication, he was asked, what's wrong with the world? And he was asked to write an editorial answering that question. And his response is this, Dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. The shortest editorial ever written. But he got something here. When he was asked what's wrong with the world, he answered, I am. Because he understood that the real issue was, was not external. No, it was internal. It was in the heart. There was something wrong with his heart and all of our hearts that needed to be taken care of. That was the real 
issue. And so what is our biggest problem? Well, our biggest problem is sin. And it's even worse than that because God in his lion-like holiness must punish sin. And the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. So we earn death because of this poison that's inside of us, the poison of sin. So here are our, our truths here about God and about ourselves. These three important truths that God is a lion God is a lamb, and sin is my biggest problem. Those are things, that, that, that's how we need to shape our, our paradigm here, believing those three truths. The problem is, again, we rarely believe all three of those. They just don't fit in our brains. Just like the disciples couldn't fit what was happening in their brains, we can't fit all three of those very well. That God is a lion, God is a lamb, and sin is my biggest problem. We, we choose one or two of those, but not all three. I want to illustrate that a little bit. I want to, I want to describe some scenarios, how we go about handling these three truths. Three different scenarios, how we, how we approach this. Sometimes we approach it like this. God is a lion, but he's not a lamb, but we still believe sin is my, my biggest problem. Okay, a person who approaches it like this, what, what's going on inside of them and what happens and what's produced there? Okay, God is a lion and sin is my biggest problem. So they believe, they, they, they see the issue within themselves. They see the depravity that is in themselves, that their sin is a big, big deal. Okay, people, some people can see that clearly. Yes, I have failed. I have failed miserably. I have hurt people in horrible ways. I continually do this. I am a failure. And God, if he's there, it, it, it could justifiably crush me. He should, because I'm so wretched. Okay, he should punish me. Okay, I don't deserve to be near God. That's how many people approach this. Okay, they see God as a lion and they see their sin very clearly. And so they develop this, this burden of guilt and shame and even self-hatred. Okay, so that's one approach, and maybe some of you can relate to that. Let's think about a, a, a different approach. Still believe God is a lion, but not a lamb, and you don't see sin as the biggest problem. Now, this is how the disciples were looking at things, I believe. They saw God as the lion, they believed in that Old Testament God who was fierce, who was holy, who was above all, who punished. They, they saw him. Um, but they didn't see sin as their biggest problem. Instead, as I mentioned earlier, they saw Roman oppression as their biggest problem. So they assumed that God, in his lion-likeness, should address that problem. That should be his priority. That's our biggest problem, and so God's going to take care of that one. And when he didn't, like he was supposed to, again, they were very confused. They missed him, and some people outright rejected him because he wasn't solving the problem that needed to be solved. And again, aren't we like that? We may believe in God, and we see, we see his power, and we we. we Think that he can and, and will act in this world, and yet 
The, the problem that he's going to address is not, not our sin, it's something else. Okay, it's some societal problem. It's some, some personal problem. Okay, if God's God, he's going to address this one. This one is a heavy one for me. That's what we think. And then he doesn't. And again, we get confused and frustrated and perhaps even reject them. Where we say, we're telling God, no, you must address this problem. This is the biggest problem in the world or in my life right now. Why aren't you doing anything? So that's an approach. One more that I want to describe. You believe God is a lamb. So you believe God is a lamb, but you don't really see him as a lion, and therefore you don't really see sin as that big of an issue. Now this is is how I approached things, I think, before I became a Christian. Okay? I, I came to Christ when I was in college. Before then, this is how I saw God, I think. I saw him as small, not very weighty. I think he was there, but he didn't do a lot. And he certainly wouldn't, he wouldn't judge Hey, he, you know, he was, he was a, a tolerant, accepting God. He wasn't going to judge. He, he, um, he wasn't intolerant of sin. That's how I saw him. And, and, and he, would, he would certainly wouldn't, he wouldn't judge me because I was a pretty good guy. And I hadn't committed any of the big sins. There weren't any felonies on my record. And so he was not going to judge me. He, he was obligated to accept me. Because I didn't believe in a holy God. I didn't believe in a holy God who saw the depths of my sin and saw all the results that could come about if that sin was pursued in all its ugliness. And, and, and that, I didn't see that holy God that must respond to that sin. I just couldn't see it. And so I, I saw a very small God. He's a lamb, easily manipulated. And that's how I saw God. But in reality... God is all three of these things. He is a lamb, he is a lion, and sin is my biggest problem. Now, as I said earlier, though, we, we have a really hard time fitting all these together. They just don't seem to work in our minds. Sometimes we see our sin, but we're unsure, is he going to address my sin as a lion or as a lamb? Some of us think, yeah, he will address it as a lion. He will crush me. Some of us, like I did, say, eh, probably not a real big deal. He's obligated to accept me. And we go back and forth, and we're not sure how he's going to respond to our sin. We just can't see it. None of us could see it until, until Jesus died and rose again. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of these things come together. They all merge together, and we get to see them clearly for the first time. And on the cross, we see that sin really is an issue. It is the issue. Sin is the big issue. And God responds to that as a lion. He must crush it. Again, he sees the extent of our sin. He sees the results of our sin. He, he looks all around it. You know, sometimes we, we get upset. We have this sense of, of injustice because something bad happens to us or somebody else. And, and we, we feel that rise up in us. Well, well, God feels that times a million, and he sees it everywhere. On the cross, God responded to sin, and he showed 
that it really did deserve a death penalty. Okay, sin must result in death before a holy God. He cannot tolerate sin. He's too perfect and pure. Death must come about because of our sin. And yet, he showed his lamb-likeness in that he was willing to take that penalty for us. Where he, he said, I, I, I will die. And he was willing, although not deserving, he was willing to take the penalty for us. And so, Jesus on the cross, <clears throat> we see sin, how awful it really is, and yet we see God's willingness to pay for it, to take it upon himself, to remove our guilt. He is both a lion and a lamb. His holy justice and his compassionate love come together on the cross. We couldn't see how it could work before. We thought he, he, he had to choose one or the other. He either has to crush or he has to blindly accept. But on the cross, he, he both punishes severely, but he takes it on himself in Jesus, pays the penalty, and solves our biggest problem. <clears throat> and when he does that, he, he, offers, he offers to pay that debt for us freely. Okay, Jesus came to, to pay that debt freely for us. And he just, he just offers it to us. And all he asks from us is that we, we believe it. And we just receive that. We acknowledge that he is these, these things. He is a lion and he is a lamb. Sin is my biggest problem. We just simply believe, we trust in that. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world in his lamb-like compassion that he gave his only son in his lion-like holiness, he paid the payment that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And to explain that a little bit more, we could go to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, where it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you confess that, you declare it, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We could pause there. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on him. Because of what he did in Jesus, we simply call. It's a, it's a simple prayer. Simple declaration to God. Yes, I receive this. God, I believe. I believe this is who you are. But... It's not simply that God removes our sin. <clears throat> it is that. But when we call on him and when we experience salvation, when we are saved, it's not just that he removes a debt, it's that he gives us life. He gives us fullness of life. And that's what we're celebrating this morning on Easter is that Jesus rose. He didn't just die and stay dead. 
No, he rose and, and showed, on the cross, he showed his lamb-like quality of, of self-sacrificing for us. But then, on Easter Sunday, he showed his lion-like quality in that he was stronger than death. He overcame death. Death couldn't hold him down. And, and so he, he plowed right through death, and then he ushers all of us to follow in to follow him and to receive the same kind of life. And so we have this surprising life that he promises for eternity, and I want to describe that really, really quickly. What we receive here, when we receive this life, we're not only, we don't not only have that debt removed, but we're credited with his righteousness, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, we earn his righteousness. We had a debt of a million dollars. He paid that debt, and then he gave $10 million. He deposited that into our account. He credited, credited us with his righteousness. Now we do not have to feel dirty. We are clean. We are his righteousness. Secondly, we're, we are adopted into his family. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is not just a legal transaction. This is a relational thing where we're invited into his family. He becomes our father forever. And he loves us with his full, holy love forever as his children. And then thirdly, we are given, given eternal joy. I like how David describes it in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is pleasure. There is joy forever in Christ, in eternal life. And this is what we receive simply by believing. I want to go back to Romans, Romans 10, <clears throat> where it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This happened to me, like I said, when I was in, in college. And I came into college with this very light view of God, vague view of who God was. I saw him sort of as a lamb, but he was soft. And although I had what could be called a, 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 a bit of a, a, a Christian background, at least I'd been associated with a, a, a church who claimed Christianity, um, I had never really come to a, to a real faith. I had never come to that. And I had never seen the severity of my sin, like I described earlier. Just never seen it. Until my sophomore year of college, my eyes were opened a little bit. And I saw what was inside of me. Yes, I had not committed those really big, obvious sins that would make the, the papers. But those seeds were inside of me. I could see it for the first time. I could see that, okay, every, every lustful thought turned into adultery or rape. Every thought of jealousy turned into murder. Those things were in me. And by God's grace, he had maybe held things back so they weren't expressed fully, but they were very much in me. And I could see that for the first time that I needed him. I could also, along, alongside that, see his holiness, see that he was a lion, that, that God was not just obligated to accept me. Actually, in his holiness, he was obligated to punish that awful sin that was inside of me. Okay, he was obligated to do that. And when I saw those things, I saw the depth of my sin and I saw the holiness of God, it caused me to fall to my knees and look to the Lamb. 
look to the lamb, that he was my only hope. Only if the lamb sacrificed for me could I be saved. And so I, I, I prayed a simple prayer. And I called on him. And I said, God, I, I cannot save myself. My sin is too great. I need you. Thank you so much for coming to rescue me. You didn't make me crawl to you. No, you ran after me. And you caught me. You brought me back. You offered me this gift, and I receive it. And I just wonder if there's anybody in this room that might be in a similar place where perhaps you've never quite seen your sin for what it is, Perhaps you've never quite seen God's holiness for what it is, or perhaps you've never seen his compassion, his love for what it is. Even though maybe you've been in Christian circles or you've had that background, maybe there's never been that point where you see it and then you declare it. You call on the Lord for salvation. And maybe that's you this morning. And I want to urge you to call on him just to simply acknowledge through prayer, yes, God, you are holy, but you are also loving, and you saved me when I couldn't, couldn't save myself. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just give us a, about a minute here in silence. And I'd love for everybody just to, to bow their heads and to pray to God. And if there is anybody that, um, that recognizes that they have not called on the name of the Lord before, I would urge you to do that right now and to receive that that eternal life, that salvation that he offers. So we're going to give that minute. And after that minute, um, we're going to worship a little bit more together. We're going to rejoice in what he's done. But please right now have that moment with, with God, with Jesus. And if you need to, call on his name. It's true. He is our living hope. We can live with him. We can live forever. I just want to encourage any of you, if you did pray to receive that gift, to call on his name, I would strongly encourage you just to tell somebody. Tell somebody that you know is a, is a Christian, maybe somebody that brought you here, and just let them know and, and let them help you walk in the new life that you can now have. And if you, you want somebody to talk to, I'd love to talk to you as well. Or you could email me, email, email me later this week, whatever that word is. Um, and, um, and, and we just want to encourage and support you in that. But again, we are so grateful that you could come uh, join us this morning and celebrate our hope together with us. And remember, he is risen. He is risen. All right, we'll see you next week.